Have you ever been left to do a job that you didn't feel entirely prepared for? Maybe it was that first job you think back on or some job where you, you got some training, you, you had somebody who kind of came alongside, shadowed you and showed you what to do, but then the moment came and you really didn't feel ready. You figured there'd still be lots of time, that this person would still be there. If something went wrong, you'd have somebody to fall back on, but suddenly the expert says, I'm leaving, it's yours, go for it, you can do this. And you thought, no, I can't. I'm not really ready at this point. Even if you haven't walked through those exact circumstances, you, you know that sense of feeling inadequate at various times in life, when you just feel like you are not ready for what you've been given to do or that you're in a room full of people and everybody else understands the mission and they know what's going on and, and you feel like the one who doesn't and you're like, what am I doing here? I don't have a clue. If you're a parent, you might remember that moment when your first child was born and they put that child in your arms and there's that, that mix of joy and just a little bit of terror that this life has now been entrusted to my care and, and, and I'm not sure I've not done this before, right? Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14 as we pick up the last half of this chapter. The disciples of Jesus Christ are having just that kind of moment, that point at which they have been given something to do, they do not feel ready for the calling that they have been given, and Jesus Christ is leaving them. The the framing of this passage is what we saw last week, which ended in chapter 14, verse uh, 13, with Jesus saying, um, in fact, verse 12, that you will do greater works than I have done. Him saying to his disciple that this, this spreading of the kingdom will be even more dramatic under your ministry, and so there's that that sort of leads into this section. Chapter 15, that frames it on the other side, has Jesus saying, you will bear much fruit. My disciples will bear fruit, and there will be much fruit. And so you have Jesus telling the disciples of what sounds like tremendous expectations of what lies before them, and yet couched with the fact that he is leaving them. Everything that he says is in light of the fact that he continues to remind them that I am about to go away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So he's modeled for them powerful ministry, authoritative teaching, sacrificial loving. He has showed all of this to them, and now he's saying to them, now you will go, and you will be like me, and you will serve, and you will lead, and you will love, and you will teach, and I will not be with you. You're going to do all this. You will even, and no doubt the disciples are thinking this. Jesus will say it in a couple of chapters, but no doubt they are at least thinking, you will also face the intensity of opposition that I faced, all of that, and yet I am leaving. It is difficult for us to imagine the level of doubt and despair that was threatening to overwhelm the disciples in that moment. This is that that job that you do not feel ready for and you cannot believe the person who is training you is actually leaving They had barely gotten past just moments before watching Jesus, the master, wash their feet and say, now this is how you love one another. This is how you you serve them. Do greater works than I have done. And then he says, if you look at verse 15, start of the section that we're in today, he says, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Throughout this whole section, that's the link that keeps, he keeps coming back to. Love and obedience. He says it here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He, he repeats it again in verse 21. He speaks about it in verses 23 and 24. Those who love me keep my commandments. Those who don't, do not. And then at the end of this section in verse 31, he will hold himself up, in fact, as an example and say, you have seen my love for the Father by my obedience to the Father's will. And so he continues to set before them this link between love and obedience. Imagine yourself as a disciple now. Jesus has not just set the bar high. Jesus has set it perfectly. He has done ministry with power like they had never seen. He has taught with authority like they had never heard. He has loved in a way like they had never experienced. And now he is saying to them, this is how you are to go and serve and teach and love. And simultaneous with that is, I'm leaving. And so the dilemma for the disciples at this point must seem insurmountable. We can barely fathom how we are to love one another like you're teaching or to do the works that you have done. We can barely fathom what you have done and now you're leaving the passage before us this morning in Acts 14 answers that concern, and it does so with a promise. The answer to this remarkable dilemma for the disciples is a promise, and it is the promise from Jesus of his presence with them forever. It is the promise of his presence. John 14 through 17, Stuart introduced this section last week, and as he said, this is a, a series of promises. We are in the part of Jesus' ministry that is focused almost exclusively on his disciples. The public ministry is now behind. It is the final hours of his time with his disciples. He is preparing them for what is imminent, and that is what they are about to see in hours, their master hung on the cross, but he is preparing them already for what is beyond that. And that is the building up of the church, the part that they don't yet fathom. And so this section is just a series of wonderful promises meant to instill hope and comfort and strength, promises for the disciples that what you see, don't, don't get caught up in just seeing this, this cross and, and thinking the worst because I have given you promises of what is to come Rest in those promises by faith, and they are promises for you and I that are meant to instill hope as well. All of these promises ultimately depend on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for fulfillment. All that Jesus says in 14 through 17 and all of the promises are null and void if there is not the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where these are met. That is where they are fulfilled in him dying and rising again, and they will come to see that only at this moment, it is, it is a struggle to believe all of these things that Jesus is saying. And so today, this is the promise of Jesus' ongoing presence with his people, you and I, and the implications of that. Let me read just the first half of this last section. We'll go uh, 15 down through 24 just to start with. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, I am, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The promise that Jesus gives to the disciples of his ongoing forever presence with them is in two parts, at least chronologically. The first part chronologically actually is in verses 18 to 20, and it is responding to the most immediate need of the disciples when in just Hours from this time, Jesus will be arrested by the guard and taken away and put on trial with the verdict being his execution and hung on a cross. And there is this immediate need for the fear of abandonment, the terrifying fear that not only has Jesus been talking about leaving, but now he is actually ripped from us and and we are terrified that he is gone. If Jesus leaves, they are without their shepherd, their master, their Lord, their counselor, their helper, their strength. If this goes the way that he is talking, they are having a hard time imagining that. And so the first part is to meet their immediate need. And he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you and me, and I in you. And then he repeats again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. The fact that Jesus says at the beginning of that statement, I will not leave you as orphans, implies that there will be a stage at which they will feel as if they have been orphaned. There will be a moment when they will feel like they have been left, and that will be that time between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That will be this period they are about to enter into when their Savior has been hung on the cross and has died and is put in the tomb, and they are gathered back in Jerusalem in fear that he is gone. That despite everything he has said, it is hard to get over what they have seen with their eyes and they will be in grief and alone. And Jesus is lovingly, graciously preempting that by saying, I will not leave you that way. You may experience this, you may think you're experiencing this for a moment, but know that I will come to you. The beauty of what he says here, when he says in verse 18, I will come to you, and then you will see me, the world will not, and because I live, you also will live. What he's saying is, he's talking about the resurrection. And he's saying, in that day, when you see me, I won't leave you as orphans, I will come to you and you will see me. And when you see me, there will not only be reunion, but there are Remarkable implications, because when you see me then, having known that I was crucified and now seeing me alive, you will realize the confirmation of everything I've been teaching you. 
I am in the Father. The Father and I are one. You and I are joined together, you who are trusting in me. When you see me alive, it's as if it will all come together. You will then see what's happening here, and, and, and you will know at that moment that you have eternal union with me. Now, there is a specific promise here for the 11 disciples of him appearing to them, but the implications for you and I are enormous because what Jesus is getting to in verses 19 and 20, when he speaks of then when you do see me, what he goes on to say here is, is the heart of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why the resurrection is so crucial to our gospel. It's not just that Jesus died for our sins, but that he rose, that he overcame the grave, that he conquered death, and in so doing, defeats sin. If Jesus was never seen alive again, if this moment with the disciples is it, and he is not able to say, but you will see me, then the rest wouldn't matter. We would be fools to believe at that point. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so the first implication of the presence of Jesus Christ, remember there's sort of two phases to this. The first presence he's speaking about is his resurrection presence. When he is there physically with them, risen from the grave, the first implication of that is union with Christ. When they see him on that first day of the week, when they celebrate in that moment those accounts of him out of the grave and appearing to them, those accounts that they report to us in all of the Gospels with joy, that will be the moment when they will know Jesus has risen and he has conquered sin and death and we are his. We belong to the Savior and he is alive and we have been joined to him. And so he says in verse 20, that in that day you will know I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. You will know the truth of what I have been preparing you for and teaching you, and that is that when I die on the cross, you will be joined in the sense that your sins will be on me. Your sins will be experiencing God's wrath when I am suffering on the cross. You will be joined to me in that sense that your redemption will be being accomplished and you will be united with me in resurrection. You will have been joined with me in conquering death and being raised from the dead and having the hope of eternal life. And so the first implication of this is, is, is what he is simply saying here is that because I live, you also will live. The first implication is union with Christ. And that is the implication of them seeing Jesus alive. But the other implication that comes from the promise of his presence is also that there is judgment on those who are not joined to Christ. Because his point here in verse 19 is, in a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. He'll reiterate that down again in, in verse 21, that those who love me, I will manifest myself to him, implying again that the world will not see him. There are those who, when they see Jesus alive, understand this is the resurrection, this is the, the victorious conqueror. We are joined with him and we have union with Christ and to the rest of the world that is in blindness and that is in rejection of Christ, there is judgment. He is reiterating the fact that there are many who will not see him, who will remain lost, who will remain in blindness. The world longs for something supernatural. Unbelievers 
want something mystical if they can find it. They'd like some experiential thing with God if they can. Philip said it back in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus is confirming here that it's only those who truly come to him by faith who are joined to him who see him, who recognize him for who he is. For the rest, they remain lost in sin. It's all the things that Jesus has been saying. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. They will see me. Romans 2.9 says those who are spiritually blind are in darkness. Colossians 1.13, speaking of believers, says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus Christ is affirming to his disciples. There, there may seem to be a time when you, you feel like an orphan, when you, you wonder what has happened because I have been crucified. It won't last for long. I won't leave you that way. I will come to you. And when I come to you, you will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that by believing in me, you will have life. You will live and you will be joined to me. And all who continue to reject me will remain in darkness. We stake our hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We believe that our Savior gave himself as a ransom and that he rose victoriously and that in that is life. So that's the first piece of this, his presence with them. Sort of chronologically, if you will, you have the the promise that he's already giving them. He's promising his presence. He then is crucified. There is this period between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then the first fulfillment of the promise is his appearance to them on that first day of the week when he is among them. And then he ministers with them for weeks after that, that he is physically present. 1 Corinthians 15 says he is seen by up to 500 of his disciples during the course of that period. But then we know After that, Jesus ascends into heaven, and so he is no longer physically present with them. And so that brings us to the second part of this, which is this another helper. That takes us back to verse 15, actually verse 16, when he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Key word in this section is that little adjective, another. Another helper. I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper. There's two Greek words that can be translated as another. This one generally, not all the time, but generally has the idea of another of the same kind. So you you already have one who fits this role. You've already experienced helper, counselor, comforter, but this will be then another, another one just like that. You will have that promise. In other words, what he is saying now is the Father will send this another. What Jesus is is promising is his own presence. You've already had me as helper and comforter and counselor. You will now have another one who will be with you And in you. In fact, he even says, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. They had already experienced, whether they knew it or not, the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit was already ministering to them because they were in the presence of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit was present as well. So he says, You you already know he's been with you, and not only that, but he will be in you. 
This, another helper who comes, will come and dwell in you, this comforter and counselor. And so he's saying to them, even though I won't be physically present with you, this one that the Father is sending will be bringing my presence to you. I, I will not be departing from you in, a, in a, a sense that I'm just sort of abandoning you in any way. I will continue to be present with you through the Spirit, who he identifies first here as the Spirit of truth. In verse 17, he'll say down in verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So he is clearly identifying who this is. This is the Holy Spirit. A little bit of theology here. We believe in one God existing in three persons, that he is fully God, that he is uniquely God, that he is God in essence, and yet he exists in three distinct persons who are equal in essence. The perfect Godhead, perfect God in three persons. If you struggle to wrap your head around that, good. That's because this is God. We are finite creatures trying to understand an infinite, incomprehensible creator, redeemer God. And so there, there ought best be some level at which we say, I can't quite figure exactly how that all works. I can't do the science and the physics and all the stuff that makes that work. But scripture teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all fully God even as three unique persons. We have the testimony of God's word that identifies the Spirit as God. One of the examples of that is in the book of Acts. When Peter is confronting a couple who have sold some property and, and are not telling the truth about how much they are bringing for an offering from that property, and in Acts 5, verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And a verse later, you have not lied to man, but to God. So he's making it clear the Holy Spirit is indeed God. You have lied to God. Throughout the New Testament, we've got statements about the Holy Spirit that describe him. Romans 8, Philippians 1, the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, the Spirit of God. He Hebrews 9, the eternal Spirit. Again, having the qualities only God can have. Spirit of holiness, Romans 1. And then here in John 14, the Spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. What did Jesus just identify himself as back in verse, six, in, in verse 6 of this chapter? I am the way, the truth, and the life. This spirit will minister truth. I am the truth, so this spirit is ministering to you on behalf of me. He is speaking my truth to you. He is bringing to mind what I have taught you. He is instructing you in my truth. The Holy Spirit proclaims God's truth. The phrase, another helper, in verse 16, NIV says another counselor. We get different images in our mind with counselor, helper, comforter, advocate. They all sort of, we have, we have different sort of things we read into that. It is the Greek word parakletos, and it is a word that we really cannot adequately translate with one word. It is all of those things sort of rolled into one. It certainly in the first century had legal implications to it. The parakletos was the, the advocate, the defense attorney, if you will, who would plead your case before the judge. And so all of that is caught up here. He is comforter, counselor, advocate. 
He's Christ to us in the sense that the Spirit is bringing us the presence of Christ. That's why this, the key here goes back to another. All that the disciples had experienced from Jesus, his teaching, his truth, his wise counsel, his help, his strength, his comfort, his advocacy on their part before his Father, his praying for them and interceding, all that they had experienced in Jesus, they now will experience through the Holy Spirit who will mediate the presence of Jesus. It will be as if Jesus is still there with them. And he will be with us, he says in verse 16, forever. He will be in you. That's the, that's the really radical part of all this. He's already been with you because I'm here with you is what Jesus is saying, but he will actually be in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 Speaking to believers, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God does what? Dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If the spirit of him who raised, this is down in verse 11 of Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You get it? That he's trying to emphasize to us the spirit is in you. He is at home in you. He is abiding with you. He is present with you. And so here in John 14, Jesus is promising that after he has died, after he has rose and he has ascended into heaven and he is no longer physically present with his disciples and they are now carrying on as the body of Christ, he will actually send his presence to them so that they will be the body of Christ. They individually will be bearers of the image of Christ with the power of Christ. And there's implications of this. There's three more implications now that deal with this phase of the Holy Spirit that I think are in this passage, and I'll put them under the headings of assurance, enablement, and instruction. First one's assurance. This is the most obvious one. This is the part where Jesus is putting to rest any idea that any believer would have at any time of feeling abandoned whether you are the disciples in the moment after Jesus has ascended and suddenly you feel like, now what? Or you are in the worst trial of your life and you are feeling like, where is God in this? Or you're feeling alone and you're wondering where Jesus is and there's any sense of feeling abandonment. This is the, the part that Jesus is stressing when he says he will be in you forever. This is the part, the indwelling Holy Spirit that allows Jesus in Matthew 28 in that great commission passage to say, I am with you, how long? Always, to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you. I will be with you always. That's what allows the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 to describe Jesus as saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's never a moment, regardless of what your circumstances are, that if you are trusting in me where you should think, I wonder if Jesus is here. I wonder if he's with me in this. Because he says he is, he's promised it. Even before he ascends into heaven as he's commissioning his disciples in Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. When, when once I'm gone and the Holy Spirit comes on you and now dwells in you, what will you do? You will witness of me because I am now present in you. I am enabling you to speak forth truth. It is the, the, the benefit of the gospel being ministered to us is the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in us. We, we need that assurance, don't we? That Jesus is always with us. It, it, it carries with it comfort. 
and encouragement. It carries with it conviction because it also presents us with the reality that wherever we are, even if we think we are alone, we are still in the presence of God because God's spirit is still in us. So even when we are behaving in a way that that we think, well, there's really nobody around to see this, we are still in the presence of God. He's not abandoned us. And yet there's such comfort in this. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Context there in Ephesians 4, talking about being sinful anger and sinful lying and, and relational kind of things that we do to one another sinfully. And Paul's warning there is a serious one saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't carry on this way. But notice that he doesn't say, and if you keep carrying on in the sin and you grieve the Holy Spirit, well, eventually he's just leaving you. Eventually, sorry, but you're going to lose him if you keep doing that. In fact, he couches this with the, the, the comfort of, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were, what? Sealed for the day of redemption. Sealed for that day when your redemption is complete and you are standing before Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit still functions as a seal, protecting you and keeping you. And, and even though our sin we ought to take seriously, and the Spirit convicts us, and, and it it grieves the spirit and it interferes with our, the sweetness of our fellowship with Christ. We also, in being warned about our sin, are also being assured that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is with you forever. You still belong to Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, he is always present with you. I give you the simplest application of all is that when you pray, you do not need to ask Jesus to come and be with me now. We do that sometimes out of habit in praying. The reality is we ought to be praising Jesus that he is with us. Lord Jesus, thank you that where I am in the midst of this crowd of unbelievers, where I am in the midst of this awful trial, where I am having just committed this sin for the umpteenth time, you are here with me. You have not left me. You have not forsaken me. You are with me. He never forsakes you. Second implication is enablement. This goes to this whole part with the disciples of, you will do greater works than I. You will bear much fruit. If you're one of the disciples at this moment, you're going, how? We, we, don't, we don't even fathom how you do the things you do. And now you're leaving us. How can you possibly expect us to love and serve and, and obey? In fact, he's given this almost insurmountable calling. Love like me, serve humbly like me. Bring forth the authority of the gospel as I would. But how? You and I still struggle with sin and flesh. We know what this is. It, it, think about the disciples. This has come only a short time, maybe it was an hour ago, that they were sitting in that room and, and Peter said, Jesus they're not going to take you. They're going to have to go through me to get to you. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, before the morning comes, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. And so if you're the disciples and now Jesus has followed that up with, you're going to do greater works than I and you will bear much fruit. You as a disciple are going, that's not even possible. I don't even, I can't even obey you tonight when you're right here. How am I going to obey you when you're gone? The imminent departure of Jesus must have seemed like just this recipe for disaster. If obeying Jesus is what shows my love, which he keeps saying in this passage, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. 
what a sense of hopelessness if you feel like, oh, if this, if this is all on me at this point, I, if, if my obedience now is all on me and I can't, even, I can't even stand for Jesus in the hours in which he is in his greatest sorrow, then what hope is there? That's why the promise of this another helper is so crucial. That's why Jesus can, can make this connection over and over again. If you love me, you'll, you'll obey me because he's speaking to those who are believers. They will love and they will obey because it is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not left them to fend for themselves. He's not said, okay, guys, here's the instruction book. You've seen it. Do it. Shuts the door and says goodbye. He hasn't forsaken us. He says, I'm, I'm going to walk with you. I will give you power. I will remind you of these things. I will be there to comfort you. I will be there to remind you of forgiveness and the gospel when you sin. I'm still present with you. The work of walking in love and obedience to Christ is the fruit of his spirit within us. It's the whole message of Galatians chapter 5. The, the church at, Galatian, at Galatia is, is, is being tempted to, to run back to works They've come after Christ in faith, but now these teachers have come in and, and have told them, well, but you still got to perform. You can't keep Christ if you don't perform. You can't stay right with God if you don't do all of these things and jump through these hoops. And Paul says to them in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Jesus has set you free from the bondage of sin. He set you free from the bondage of the notion that you somehow could perform your way to God. And that freedom is now that you can love and serve one another. You could never win God's approval in the first place by your works because we're sinners by nature. We, we, we could never overcome our sin. And, and your performance as a believer ultimately is not all about you and, and how well you can do it on your own. It's about God being at work in you. And so he says in Galatians 5.14 that you've been set free to fulfill the law, which can be summarized as love your neighbor as yourself. How do I do that? He goes on in verse 16 and he says, walk by the Spirit. God's Spirit is within you. And so God's Spirit is bringing to mind Scripture. He's helping you in situations. He's convicting you when you are tempted in sin. He's helping you speak to that unbeliever and, and speak truth. He's giving you comfort and reminding you of God's promises when the diagnosis has come and it's not good or the, the, the job layoff notice has just come. He's the one who continues to comfort you with God's truth and, and to remind you in those moments you are kept and you belong to him. And so he says, keep in step with him and the fruit, he goes on in Galatians 5, and when he's at work in you as you're submitting to him, what will result from that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that, that, are, that, that, that we are not naturally good at, but that God's spirit in us with God's work and the body of Christ around us all help to bring about in our lives. And so he is encouraging us now that because we are joined to Christ, we have this enablement. Look again at verse 23, because there's just there's a picture Jesus gives here that's so important. Jesus answered, this is Judas has asked this question, and Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Does that sound familiar at all? Where have we seen this home before in this chapter? If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, remember the whole thing, I'm leaving, and if I go, I will prepare a place for you in my father's house, and my father's place are many of these homes. 
dwelling places. In my father's abode are these, these homes. And he's using the same word here later on in the chapter that he used earlier, these places of habitation. One day you will come and dwell in this place where you will be with God in his presence. In the meantime, in verse 23, he says, you know what? God will come and make his home in you. He will abide in you. What a remarkable statement that is, that, that we look forward to when we will be in the presence of God, but God's already saying, I'm already I'm present, I'm at home in you. There is no more earthly physical temple in the sense of some building where God's presence is, is specifically isolated. He is now at home in his people. That is why we are the body of Christ, because Jesus is dwelling in us. In the warning passage in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you, speaking to believers, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's saying it there as a warning statement. You can't, you can't go on and carry on in sinful behavior, unconvicted, unconcerned, just, just wallowing in sin for any length of time like that. If you keep doing that, that doesn't make sense because as a believer, if you're trusting in Christ, God's spirit is dwelling in you. There's something in you. There's someone in you who is saying, no, this is not where you belong. This is not what you should be doing. This is not what you should be saying. God's spirit dwells in us changing us. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, fear of abandonment was foremost in their minds, and the promise of heavenly dwelling places did not seem to alleviate earthbound fears. So at this point, Jesus employs the dwelling motif to indicate that the disciples themselves would shortly become a dwelling place for the divine spirit. How is it that we are able to love and obey Jesus? It's because he is in us because his spirit dwells in us, freeing us from the bondage to sin, now giving us the power to deny the flesh, to resist temptation, to flee from it. I just wanna, I wanna go on to the last section before I do Judas's question in verse 22, in case you're wondering, how does he, what's this question that Judas, not Iscariot, says? He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself, make yourself appear to us and not to the world? So he's, Jesus has promised after this resurrection, you will see me, world will not. The heart of what Judas is asking goes back to his expectation, rightly, of all of the Old Testament prophecies that point forward to when the Messiah comes. He comes in glory and power, and the world sees him, and, and they see his greatness. And that's all Judas is wondering at this point. How is it possible that we will see you in this glorious moment? We will know that we are in you, and yet the world will not see you. Because Judas doesn't see it yet, Jesus does. There, there's coming a day when Jesus will come in power. That is still future for us. We are still looking forward to that day when, when Jesus is ruler over this earth visibly in power to all and he is manifest and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It will happen. But that's, that's the heart of what Judas is asking. Let's look at this last section. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. There's a lot in this final passage. One implication we'll get to, but let me just hit a couple things just very quickly each that I, he says here that I think are worth us catching. There's that final statement that references Satan. Um, when he says, I will no longer talk much with you, verse 30, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus is for one further time making it very clear what has begun to transpire in these last moments is Satan has already entered Judas Iscariot. The betrayal is already underway. The mechanism has started, and the world will see Jesus on the cross dying, and there will be this sense of, well, he's beaten. He's been defeated. And, and Jesus here one more time is saying to his disciples, listen, even though the ruler of this world right now seems very active and he seems to be coming and having his way, you need to know he has no claim on me. He has no power over me. There will be no victory by him over me. Ultimately, I will conquer him. So there's, there's that assurance. There's also the fact that he says in verse 29, I'm telling you all this so when it takes place, you'll believe. Jesus just reminding us, this is what prophecy is all about. Biblical prophecy is to give us assurance that we see it fulfilled and we marvel at its fulfillment. And he's saying to his disciples, I know all of this right now will seem mind-blowing over the next few hours. Trust me, I'm telling it to you now so that you will know when you see it all unfold, exactly as I said, you will say, this is God's plan in all of this. None of this was a blip. None of this was a detour. None of this was a mistake. It was all God's perfect plan. And so he encourages them. And it's the same way we should be encouraged by prophecy. It's not, not for, for us to sort of magically try to measure times and dates and see if we can pinpoint, you know, what day is Jesus coming back on. The hope in prophecy is that we've got a, a, a God who has fulfilled his word again and again and again. Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus' fulfillment, it's just on and on that, that we're to see prophecy and see its fulfillment as bringing us joy. And, and the last just sort of side piece I just want you to see is verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. He's countering what they're experiencing. They're experiencing grief. He's saying, if you had, if you had gotten all this, and gotten all the theology of all this, you would be saying, wait. So when Jesus dies and goes to the Father, that, is, that, that means this is, it's all happening as he promised. This is the fulfillment. He's going to the, the Father, and that's, that's wonderful for Jesus, and that is fulfillment of prophecy, and that is all good. And instead, he said, you're all sitting here, and you're on the verge of tears, and you're about to deny me, and you think your world's being shattered. Let me just encourage you with application on this because we, we can look at the disciples and point fingers or we can look at our own selves and know that when we are in trials and we are in hardships and things are going wrong, in those moments when the truth says, Jesus is with me, he has not forsaken me, in fact, his grace is sufficient for me in this moment. His power is being made perfect in my weakness. So this hardship is for his glory. I have the privilege now of suffering in some way and exhibiting Christ-likeness from my life in my suffering. In that moment, when we should be rejoicing, what are we usually doing? We're mad, you know? Why did this happen? Why is it going this way? We're angry, we're sad, we're broken. And so what he's saying to the disciples, I think he says to us as well. 
when, when, when things go this way, that's the opportunity to glorify God and, and to still rejoice in him. But the last implication, and we'll be done on this, is what he said there in verse 26. The helper of the Holy Spirit, my presence with you through the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There is in this a direct promise to his disciples there, and there is an application for you and I in this. The direct promise to the disciples is when the Spirit comes, and you now are leading the church and you are teaching and you are carrying on my word and you're thinking to yourselves, how are we ever going to remember what everything Jesus taught? Much less, we don't even know if we understood everything Jesus taught. So how is it we're going to carry this? He's saying the Holy Spirit will be there and he will bring into remembrance what I've taught you. He will bring understanding to you. He will make it clear to you so that as the early disciples are preaching and teaching and writing the New Testament letters... Who is it that is equipping them to do that? Who is working through them? First Peter says it. It's the Spirit who is moving these men of God, who is carrying them along, it says in First Peter. It is the idea that it is, it is the Spirit who is bringing back the teaching of Jesus, who is illuminating them, who is helping them now. The application for you and I, I think, is obvious. We have God's truth. We are not in need then of of. God giving us, helping us then with, with new revelation, if you will, or with taking, trying to remember what Jesus said. We have what Jesus said. We have it in his word. And so we, as we listen to, as we meditate on scripture, the spirit is kind to bring it to mind for us. He's, he's there faithfully helping to convict us with it and using it in us. That is the, why it is so essential that we feed on the word of God. Because the Holy Spirit still uses that work of illumination so that as we are reading, he is helping us to gain understanding. He's helping us to apply it. He's helping us to use it in ministry. And so the Spirit continues to strengthen us with God's truth. John will speak of this in 1 John chapter 2, just this knowledge that is given to believers through God's truth. We must feed on God's word. It is the fuel that God's Spirit uses in our lives to mediate now that truth of Jesus Christ and to work through us. Ultimately, when we, when we rest in these things, these truths, these promises, we have what Jesus said in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Worldly peace is purely circumstantial. If today is a good day, if traffic wasn't too bad, if the boss was actually fairly kind, Wow, that's, you know, a sense of peace all as well. If I come home, dinner's on the table, the kids are all under control. Oh, man, that's peace, right? He says, peace I leave you, not as the world leaves. It's a peace that's rooted in the fact that I am with you. So when the boss is just on your case, I am still with you. I'm helping you to respond with patience. When you come home and the kids are screaming, I'm still there. I'm with you to help you respond rightly and, and to cause you to be loving and sacrificial. When the news from the doctor or the news from the job is not good, I'm, I'm right with you. And my truth will give you peace. I will continue to be with you with a peace that passes all understanding because I am there and I will never leave you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son to be our ransom.
Thank you for giving your son to die in our place. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would you today cause them to see Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross and the consequence it bears for them, the fact that he is risen? Would you cause them to see that Jesus died for sinners to offer them life and forgiveness and eternal hope? Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, Help us this day to live as people indwelt by your spirit. Cause us to be sensitive to your conviction when we are tempted to respond poorly. Cause us to to respond well to your comfort when, when we are tempted to be grieved or angry, to remember that Jesus is with us, that he is working all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Lord, bring to mind those truths even as we begin this new week. We pray that the world around us, as we encounter it, would see Christ in us. Lord, we know that we will never be a perfect image of Christ. But we also know that what your word says here is true, and that he is abiding with us right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here in your people. So you are in us and with us. Thank you for how you minister to us through others who speak your truth into our lives. Help us to be teachable and responsive to that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us for that day of redemption. For when the world and Satan make their accusations, we have this hope that you are with us and in us and sealing us for that day when we will stand in glory before our Savior. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.